That is such a good question. And it really, it really hits a nerve with me because I have never thought I was doing international education. I was doing education and it had everyone from everywhere in it. Hi, I'm Jessica. And I'm Girish. And this is the Destiny Benders podcast, where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. And in each episode, we'll be meeting with Destiny Benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Our guest today on Destiny Benders is Andrew Disbury a retired international education professional. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And I have to tell you that when I got the message, first of all, I was slightly taken aback by the title of the podcast. And I did wonder whether it was some kind of homophobic slur oh! uh, until, I, until I read a little bit more detail and then I realized what it was all about. <laughs> well, you know, since you bring it up, uh, say something about that. Oh, just, well, maybe it's just British English, but the word benders is a little bit controversial, maybe sometimes here. You know what, Andrew? And it's really funny that you say <laughs> that because my husband told me the exact same thing. Girish, I haven't told you this, but when I told Matt that we were calling the podcast Destiny Benders, he was like, you can't call it that. My husband's British, Andrew, just there to explain. Go. So he, his mind where, where your mind <laughs> But then I thought, well, maybe because we reclaimed the word queer. So I thought, oh, yes, let's reclaim the word benders. I'm in for this. So let's do it. <laughs> See, you never know what you're going to get on Destiny Benders. Here we go. That, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yes. But we're so glad that you're here. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being invited. Just retired in February this year. Yes. So a much sought after position in your life being retired. Uh, but before I feel that, like I've achieved everything that I've been working towards. Yes, it's wonderful. Well, share, share with us. Tell us your story. Well, thanks very much. I mean, I'm very much um, my career is very much accidental. So um, I like to think that it's a beacon of hope to people who at say the age of 18 or 22, don't know what they're going to do when they grow up. I still never knew what I was going to be when I grew up. I think my story is one of taking opportunities and making them work. And um, other people also, and this is where your destiny bender phrase comes in very much in my life, because other people who took a punt on me and thought, well, you know, he may not be 100% fit for this, but he probably can do it. And so I've had a, I've benefited from that kind of approach from a lot of... Um, visionary people I think in my career so so I started out being a quite unusual English boy in that I was interested in foreign languages and in this country certainly in the United Kingdom the study of foreign languages is very much female dominated and I went to a school which was part of a new education drive to make um, education level uh, more level across different types of schools so um, I went to a comprehensive school where very many schools had been merged together and it was an experimental year. Uh, so there was a little bit of chaos, I would say, in, in the school curriculum. But I had the opportunity through that to pick as many foreign languages as I could 
because I figured at the very early age, it was one thing I was interested in. It was the one thing I was good at. And it enabled me to miss physical education class because uh, I did Latin instead. <laughs> so I just focused at a very early age on the thing that I could do and the thing that I really loved. And that was languages. And it wasn't because I had had any exposure in the family or, you know, hadn't had um, my brother moved to Canada when I was a small child, but that's an English speaking country. So it wasn't he, he moved to an English speaking part of Canada. So, um, you know, it wasn't that I'd had a lot of exposure to anything international. I was just hooked on language. And through that, of course, got the opportunity through school trips to go to uh, France and Germany and was totally hooked by the experience from an early age. And it wasn't till many, many years later that I realized how unusual this was. So I've always taken for granted that so many of my fellow uh, countrymen are monolingual, that I have always taken for granted the fact that I know several words for everything through my study of languages and don't really inhabit the space that they do, where they are, you know, focused on English and English only. By the time I'd finished my sort of higher education, and we were coming to the uh, end of the 1980s, I had already lived in France and China, and the Chinese part for about three or four years. And so this was highly unusual. But of course, to me, it was normal, because it was the only life I was living. <laughs> so, but in those days, I mean, you know, there were so few people, foreigners in China, uh, and learning Chinese, that it really did put you in a bit of a spotlight. And um, I will say that going back to Destiny Benders, there was one teacher at school who actually was my French teacher. And I was thinking of going to university. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I didn't know how to pick a university or a university course. Uh, the school wasn't a very, hadn't been an academic school with an academic tradition. So there was a very, a very small handful of us who did go into higher education. And this one French teacher said to me, well, I think China might be quite big in the future. And I researched courses in French and Chinese, and there was only one at the University of Leeds. And I thought, thank goodness, I don't need to choose a university. I just need to get into that one. And so I applied to do French and Chinese at Leeds University, and I got in, and the rest was very much history. I was able to repay this destiny bending some years later when I was an academic working at uh, Sheffield Hallam University in admissions. And uh, I got a phone call from a young man in the Midlands where I'd grown up. And he was looking for a course uh, in business at the business school I was working at. This particular teacher of mine had a very unusual surname in, this, in the way that I have quite an unusual surname. So when this young man rang me up from the Midlands with this unusual surname, I went, hang on a minute. And so after we'd done the whole admissions talk and the college counselling talk, and he was warming towards coming to my, to my business school, I said, uh, your dad's not called Roger, is he? Stunned silence. <laughs> and sure enough, that was, the, that was the son of my French teacher. So I was able to pay back the, my first my first bending experience, uh, uh, oh, and that was a really really nice thing to do. Uh, the other th the other plank of um, the formation of my destiny would be international agreements in education that provided money and opportunity to study abroad. Because I don't come from a wealthy family, and as I said, I was the first person in uh, my family to go to university. And the idea in the early 80s of going to study in China would have been incomprehensible, you know, but I got into a university that taught Chinese. They, in 1979, there'd been a bilateral agreement between China and, and the UK post-cultural revolution to exchange students. Leeds University had applied for and got one of the grants uh, to send students abroad. And we were the first group that went to Fudan University in Shanghai on this uh, exchange program. And, you know, I came home from university and said, Mum, Dad, the authorities 
have said that I must go to Shanghai for a year. And they went, oh, that's nice, dear. And they, you know, they trusted the university, knew what it was doing, uh, because it was after all university and the, the government was funding it. And, you know, all this kind of stuff in their mind meant it was okay for me as 19 to get on a plane. And I've got this picture of mum, dad and me at Gatwick Airport. Uh, now, when I look at it as a much older person, knowing all the, you know, the risk that, that pervades our life through our careers and through our life experiences, it, this picture makes me cry now because we're all standing there beaming and I'm getting onto a plane and they'll never hear from me again until I can find a blue airmail letter to write home uh, and, and tell them I'm okay because there's no phones and no internet, nothing. And, you know, we're all very happy and my parents are really trusting, but goodness me, there must have been, it must have been awful <laughs> for them and all the parents uh, of our group. So, you know, if we hadn't had those agreements and those funding streams, then I wouldn't have been able to do all that I did. And that, then in my career led me to be very, very committed, not only to ensuring that these things continued to conti continue to flourish at you know university to university level when I was uh, an academic, but also country to country level when I had the chance to work at the British Council in China uh, and to create schemes and, and to make agreements that enabled more bilateral exchange between academics, between leaders, between students. But given my own personal background, also to make sure that these were directed at people who were first in family uh, and who were not from uh, financially advantaged uh, backgrounds and that they also had the chance to do this because I had had that experience. So in a sense, it, the way my destiny was bent also made me very committed to bending other people's, yeah. <laughs> to use your terminology of your podcast. So, so I was very lucky that way. And I got to, as I said, I'd studied in France and, and China and then, you know, I've had a lifelong uh, well, over 40 years connection with China, uh, you know, ch uh, now I'm married to somebody from China and it's, you know, very much part, part of life. So it happened very organically. And I took advantage of some things like, why don't you try study Chinese? Oh, yes, I'll go and do that. And then, you know, some instrumental things like, well, you have to go and study abroad. So I did that. Uh, then I managed to get a scholarship to go back to China on graduating from the British Council. So later when I worked at the British Council, I was very committed to those kind of exchanges. And then, and then in terms of jobs, it was a question of being in the right place at the right time with a few of the right skills. So, so at the end of the 80s, I had lived in China by then by four or five years. And I thought to myself, if I don't leave now, I'll never be able to leave because although I'm earning six or seven times my colleague's salary, it's only 50 quid a month. And if I don't get onto the ladder back home, I'm not going to. But town twinning was very big in those late 80s days between the UK and China. And a friend of mine, again, became a destiny vendor. One of my classmates that I'd studied Chinese with had got a job servicing a local authority twinning relationship between South Yorkshire and Liaoning province in China. And she got a job as an interpreter, but at the same time, it got another full-time job. So this kind of part-time job or, or temporary job, uh, she couldn't fulfill. So she, I'd just arrived back from China and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I had no, had no money and no clue. And she rang me up and said, Andrew, you can't take this off my hands for you, can, for me, can you? It's only £300 a week. And I'm like, yes, I think I can do that for you. <laughs> yeah, probably. So sorry to interrupt. So when you got back from China, you had been there on study abroad and then a scholarship and then from the British English. Council and then teaching English. And you returned and you worked for a, an agency that that did the cities twinning the cities and yes. towns, like a That's sister right. cities kind of a program. Or That's right. There were four, there were three or four sister city relationships between um, towns and cities in South Yorkshire and Liaoning province. Uh, 
So they've clubbed together to fund a centre to not only um, do the diplomatic niceties, but also to try and get, because you know, the economy in South Yorkshire was, was becoming post-industrial, post-steel in a, in a, and post-coal and all that kind of stuff in a big way in the 80s. And they wanted to see what economic advantage, particularly SMEs, could get out of the twinning relationship to build up the economy in South Yorkshire. So it was very much a mutual thing, you know, developing Liaoning Province's industry and economy, but also South Yorkshire's at the same time. So they'd funded this centre and hired a couple of people, needed an interpreter for a mayoral delegation. And so my friend couldn't do it, so I ended up doing it. And of course, there were so few people who could speak Chinese. I had had no training. I mean, nowadays, they've all got master's in interpreting, right? And you'd have a, you'd have a minor in diplomacy or something to do, <laughs> to do, to be allowed to go near two mayors or lord mayors, you know. But in those days, you just had to be able to do it. So I would stand in the room at this very young age, never having any background in local authority or or diplomacy. And then I'd be interpreting and then doing all the doing all the industrial interpreting. And in, and in those days, there'd be like me on my side and one one person on the other side who spoke English. And we just had to figure out how to make it all work between us. Unlike nowadays, when people like me who use an interpreter can correct them. <laughs> say, no, I didn't say that. I didn't mean that. No, no, you've got the number of noughts wrong. It's hell hell nowadays for them. But in those days, you just had to figure it out. And in fact, there was one memorable occasion when too much beer had been drunk. And and, and Lord Mayor, who shall remain nameless, stood up to make a speech. And I interpreted the speech. And the Chinese all laughed and clapped and whatever in the right places. And afterwards, the Lady Mayoress came up to me and said, well, I don't know how you did that because he was talking rubbish. Her own husband. <laughs> and I said, Lady Mayoress, I just gave the speech the Chinese were expecting. You get sacked nowadays. That's awesome. <laughs> so how did you go from that to working at the British Council? Well, but so so this centre had been fun. In those days, polytechnics belonged to local authorities rather than being a national uh, higher education institution. So they'd funded the centre to be at Sheffield City Polytechnic. So I was I, I was on an academic grade, although I had nothing to do. I had purely vocational skills. I had nothing to do with academic work at the Polytechnic. Then Tiananmen Square happened and bilateral relations cooled down as you, <laughs> considerably and so did bilateral trade. So I, so I was in a self-funding unit that earned its own keep. Now, this was very early formation for me. So this was another critical point because I was used to earning the money that paid my salary. Even though I worked in the public sector uh, and I was in an academic institution, I had an annually renewed contract and we had a certain level of public funding, but we had to meet another level of income generation. And so that focused, you know, I had to be indispensable. So that was good good training for me. And when when the business all dried up, I, this is where another person was a destiny bender for me because the director of the business school, Kevin Scholes, said to me, well, let's give you a try and see whether you can be a lecturer. We'll put you on the lecturer training course. I didn't have a master's degree. I didn't have a PhD. Couldn't happen now. But let's see. Let's give you some teacher training and give you some classes and see if you can become a lecturer in international business. And he recognized the fact that I had been doing international business, unlike a lot of my academic colleagues who had been researching it. So so that's how I became a lecturer. And I did that for the longest time. That's still the longest job I've ever had. So over the years, I was a lecturer in international business. Um, and then I then I got involved in admissions quite seriously. And this is not a this is not a career guidance talk. I got into admissions because I was at a meeting handing out administrative roles to members of the international business department and I wasn't paying attention. It was a nice day and I was staring out the window thinking, God, this is boring. When's my lunch happening? And I woke up and I was admissions tutor for BA Business Studies. (laughs) What? (laughs) How did that happen? So I got into that role and I was so reluctant to do it that I tried to figure out ways of making it easier. 
This turned into a career in customer service design, which I had not anticipated because I just wanted to make it easier. So I was like, well, can't we involve the admin staff in doing some of this work? And well, I've got a friend who's in marketing. Let's talk to marketing. And the business school never talked to marketing because we knew better because I'd been at the university a long time by that stage. So I knew a lot of people who were buddies. And I was like, oh, I talked to a friend and said, don't you run student services or something? Um, can't we do more to think, think about the student, how students get here? And, and open days and all that kind of stuff. So we ended up increasing our and incre- increasing the numbers of students, but also the quality. And this was home students as well as international, because I was responsible for, by the time I finished that particular job, I was responsible for all the um, uh, recruitment into the business school and all the different streams. So, And somebody said to me, oh, you speak Chinese, go to Taiwan, get master students. So I went to a British Council fair in Taiwan. So, you know, it was all happenstance. It was all, I've got some skills. It was all like, I'll figure out how to do it later because, you know, I didn't really want this job. And, and then in my quest to make things easy, because I am quite lazy, it looked like I was being super slick and efficient by getting teamwork going and, you know, not duplicating resources by having the business school pay again to have something at the centre of the university was already doing. And I had to go around giving other schools in the university talks on how we did it. And I was so embarrassed because I didn't have a plan. It was just, I'm just lazy. You know, I don't know. <laughs> so, so, so that led me to one day being at home one summer, marking exam papers and cursing myself because I'd written a really boring exam. And so all of the answers were really boring as well. And it got to lunchtime and I read the Guardian newspaper and it was education day. So I read to the end because I did, really didn't want to mark any more scripts that afternoon. And I got to jobs and I wasn't looking for a job. I'd been at the university for 13 years that, by then. And my career was going well. I was a principal lecturer. I was, I got this admissions role. You know, I was sorted. I turned a page and it said, British Council China needs somebody who knows about education, can recruit students and speaks Chinese. And I looked at this advert and thought that very specifically has got my name on it. But I, I thought I'd never applied for a job outside the university. Uh, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I I thought, well, I've given hundreds and hundreds of students career career counselling advice, you know, as a personal tutor, how to fill in application forms, how to get placements for internships. So I thought, well, all I can do is follow my own advice on how to fill in an application form and let's see what happens. So I did it. And then letter comes back, please come for interview. And the interviews were during the summer admissions period. I thought, well, I can't be absent. So I went to the team and said, I know what we're going to do this year. We're all going to have one day off during the admissions period. Oh, Andrew, that's so generous. Because the day I gave myself off was the day I had to go off for my interview. <laughs> so I went to this interview and it was really, really rigorous because I'd literally never been to another organisation for another job interview. British Council is very formal, uh, lots of competencies and behaviours and stuff like that. So I, because I taught business and management and international business, I was giving it all my theory of you know leadership and teamwork and you know uh, marketing and all that stuff in response to every question I was batting them off feeling really pleased with myself about how I was doing and then the critical thing came and this is another destiny band because the guy who became my boss at the British Council again really took a punt on me and it comes it goes back to funding streams as well because I was being hired specifically because Tony Blair had put money into a thing called the Prime Minister's Initiative because he had met the mayor of Shanghai and thought hmm Mayor of Shanghai studied in the UK. This is a soft power route. We need more people to study in the UK. So he had funded a thing called PMI, and certain offices of the British Council were being funded to promote the UK to study abroad, and I was going for the China job. And they were hiring a whole tranche of people like me from different colleges and universities to populate 
this particular stream of work at the British Council, funded externally by government. So Michael O'Sullivan, who became my boss, said at the interview, well, this is all very well, all this theory, but you don't actually manage anybody. You don't lie and manage anybody. You're, you know, you're all peers. So how do you get things done? And this was because there was a behavioural competence at the British Council at the time called holding people, holding people to account. So I had to tick this holding people to account box on, this, on his form. I didn't know that, of course. And I heard the words coming out of my mouth before I'd even thought about it. I just said, well, I'm popular. People don't let me down. <laughs> if they've got a list of things to do, they put mine at the top. <laughs> then I, I drove home and I thought, oh, no, what have I said? <laughs> Later that evening, the phone rang and I was off to off to Beijing. Wow. wow. So clearly, whatever you said, it was the right thing. Incredible, Andrew. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing so hard right now at the story. But, you know, you, you at the outset said this is not a career guidance talk. No. Uh, but you also said there was a lot of happenstances. And life is like that, right? A lot of things happen and people come in and out of your lives. But maybe you could maybe, uh, you know, share some of your um, learnings over the years? And, and how does one stay attuned to those opportunities? Because they were coming. I mean, you're reading a newspaper, you're talking to people, you're finding yourself in opportunities. But I'm sure there was some part of you that was cognizant, that was aware. And, and how, how does one do that? I mean, looking back at later job interviews for more, much more senior roles, I've been really pleased to look the potential employer in the eye and to say, there's nothing on my CV that I am asserting. I have done all those things. And I think, I think for, because of my line of work, working in um, education, and even you know, my last job working in the private sector, which was selling services to universities, it really was important to me to be able to say, I would buy this. <laughs> this is actually really good. You know, I would do this myself. I have done this, you know. And so I, I think integrity and authenticity are very, very important. And that's that's been something that I've always been. And I've always been up front about saying, well, I know how to do 80% of this, but the other 20%, I, I've got transferable skills, which will probably probably should mean that I will be able to learn how to do the 20% I don't already know. And then the other, the other guy, the other people have said, okay, we'll take a punt on that because we think you can do it too. And, and then I've, you know, tried to do things well. I do like to do things properly. I say I'm lazy. I, I like to do things efficiently. I absolutely detest rework or, or double work or anything like that. And I think that's why colleagues in my teams have warmed to me, because I detested them having to do ridiculous things and bureaucratic things. And, and I've always said, well, you know, if you think that stapling that and putting a paperclip on it, it you know, is a waste of time. We, we once did a business process review in a team that I was managing. And the most junior person in the team put his hand up and said, I don't know why I'm doing this stapling and photocopying and, and, and paper clipping. And we worked out how many thousand hours a year he would save if he stopped doing it. And we couldn't find any good reason for him to do it. So we just said, well, stop. And, you know, I've always thought that people should come to work, know what they're supposed to do, and then have a pleasant time doing it. And if they've got a bright idea about how it could be done better, well, then please, please do it. And I think that's always been, it, it's always produced good results uh, with teams. And I've always had very happy teams, always had good, good staff survey results. And also, very interestingly, in staff surveys, teams that I've worked with have always been able to answer the question very clearly, 
how does your job contribute towards the university's strategic plan? They've always known why they were doing what they were doing and, and what goal they were working towards and whether or not they'd achieved it. And I was really pleased about that because those sorts of things frustrated me mm-hmm. when I was being managed by other people, if I wasn't clear about them. So that's all about, I think that's about authenticity and integrity as well. It's like, I'm only asking you to do what I, I do. That's a great lesson for leaders or managers to kind of understand why it is that they're asking people to do that they're you know doing so. And I think being having been a lecturer first before I was a manager, I think it does take a certain amount of confidence to say in a classroom when a student asks you a question, oh, I don't know the answer to that. And not everybody feels comfortable doing that. But I always I was always very comfortable if somebody I loved it when a student asked me a question that was hard. I thought, brilliant. Well done. Let's find out. Or why don't you tell me next week? Because I I can remember being a primary school student, being read to by a classroom teacher who was reading, I forget what the book was, but the word suave came up. And I was probably eight. And I put my hand up and said, please, what does suave mean? And he didn't know. So I came home and looked up in the dictionary and went back the next day to tell him. And he looked so displeased. I thought I was doing a really good thing, but I remembered that. And so when when I would say, I don't know, you have a look and tell me next time because great we're all learning yeah i think i think that helped me with management too because i already had that confidence about well no i don't know everything i know how to organize things and i know how to get resources and i know how to protect us as a team but i don't know what do you do on a daily basis because i don't sit and do it with you so you you know you you're the expert in what you do thinking about your career and uh as as you yourself said you kind of fell into international education when you started international education the term international education it wasn't really a thing no. i don't think so over the years it has become a thing when were you aware of international education that that that's what you were doing you were in the international <laughs> education industry or field or sector and and that it was it was a career and that people aspired to be international educators was there ever a realization along those lines that is such a good question and it really it really hits a nerve with me because i have never thought I was doing international education, I was doing education. And it had everyone from everywhere in it. And that, that see, that first admissions job I had was home and international. So I just had to recruit the right number of people from the right number of parts of the world to meet the certain targets. I taught a module called Organization Environment, which was about scanning the external environment so that organizations could operate effectively within it. You know, risk and, you know, politics and economy and all that sort of thing. So I always looked out organizations from outside in because of that training and that discipline. And I also look always, you know, with my language background and knowing five words for everything, big-headedly, I always looked at the world from outside in too. So I would say I've never done international education. I've just done education. So that that's hit a nail on the head for me. However, yeah. I suppose it became more formal when I started to be invited to go and talk at uh, sessions at conferences of the European Association for International Education. Mm-hmm. So I think the first one was about 2008 or nine. And actually, it would often be commercial partners who would invite me to come along and be the token university person selling what they were selling, you know, because I'd bought it. Uh, so this was a very interesting lesson for me, actually. I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to that in a minute because it's about how you define yourself. But the, but I start, but going back to the international education thing, I started to go to the EAIE conferences as a speaker. And what a great bunch of people. And I thought I have to because I didn't work in Europe 
ordinarily. I had teams who worked in Europe, but I personally didn't do it because I was much more Asia. And I thought, I have to hang out with these people much more. So I, I joined as a member. And then that led through to you know being elected to various groups. And I'm currently uh, chair of the um, Award and Talent Committee. But that, that probably has formalized that approach to international education because it's a, a system that I'm part of. And that's enabled me to learn a lot more through the you know, the excellent work that's done by the thousands of colleagues who are members and through publications and through, you know, uh, sessions at, at, at conference and 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 the work that we do behind the scenes. Um, uh, I, th- I guess that's given me a good training in the, in the discipline of international education. And I'm, I value that. I want to circle back to that thing I said about um, how you define yourself, though. So this is another trait of mine that I discovered I had through, you know, my experience. I used to say, I was quite commercial for somebody who worked in the public sector. That's how I define myself. Over the years, of course, there are many commercial partners. And most recently, I was working for MSM, who is one of these players in the field of private sector education. I've worked with many people, many companies who were developing services to make the job of the university easier, more efficient, more effective, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, loads of these from uh, iGraduate study portals, you know, I'm just thinking of the ones I've been personally involved with. Very often at a conference or some event somewhere, some black tie dinner, you'd be having a chat with with somebody who would say, I've got an idea. And I'd go, that sounds great. And then we'd work up a pilot and it would become a thing, you know, that they ended up being a tranche of their business. But I just like the fact that I got to do it first and I got mates rates and I got the kudos of working with them, you know, first t- first one in the UK, maybe dipping the turn in the UK water. And also I got to co-create what they were doing because I would go, no, no, that doesn't work. Or uh, no, no, that, no, the type of institution we are, you're never going to get that done. So this, here's how to get into the institution. So this has happened so many times. The really good ones, of course, that I've just name checked, I worked with very happily and had very fruitful results. There were others from the private sector who I won't name. Given that I've worked in a public sector that in this country is bashed all the time with not being up to the standard of the private sector, you know, private sector good, public sector bad is the kind of ethos that we have most of the time here. I've worked with some companies that I couldn't understand how they were making money because they were just clueless, in particular in dealing with me as a client. (laughs) Then I stopped saying I'm commercial for somebody who works in the public sector and started to say I'm just commercial. In the same way that I don't do international education, I'm just in education. I'm actually quite businesslike, you know, even though I've never worked, uh, only very latterly worked in a private sector company. That taught me a lot, actually, because it doesn't really matter. And, you know, know, sometime in the 90s, when I was in the business school, all of the public sector authorities were coming to do, sending their staff to do MBAs. And so we got to these MBA courses that were filled with people from the public sector. It was really interesting. Health health authority, local authorities, you know, uh, other education establishments and so on. And you got the insight into these organizations that were run really, really well by fantastic people. It's just the fact that it doesn't matter about public and private. It's the fact that these are good organizations with committed, talented people in doing fantastic jobs. And where where else has that been more foregrounded than in the pandemic? But Andrew, I mean, I know now that you're looking back at your career, you said you weren't an international educator, but you did spend a lot of time in the international education field. So what do you see now from, from your vantage point where do you think international education has arrived? And now you just alluded to the pandemic with all yeah. the inf- inferences that has. Where do you see it going? That's a great question. And it, it alludes to a WhatsApp conversation with a group of my EAIE buddies that happened last week. And I was actually, 
I was actually really moved by this conversation because there are a lot of dark things going on in the world around us um, in you know, what, in different countries, you know, po- politics, uh, war, you know, uh, economic difficulties, um, all sorts of things happening in, that I didn't imagine would be the case in, you know, 2022 by the time I got here. And so some of my colleagues, and I, I suppose most of them are younger than me, were were thinking about you know um how do we get our co- get our teams motivated to, to deal with all this chaos and all this you know uncertainty and get up every day and go out and do the daily job of persuading students to go from country a to country b from from college a to university b and you know and how do we get people over the fact that it's it's hard and that they can still do the job they need to do I couldn't type as fast as I speak, so I had to stop and record a message to the WhatsApp group because I was I was very excited about what the, what I'd been reading. Um, and my comment was this: that actually um, the world that we've worked in has never been any different. Every year there's been something, or every few years there's been something that really, really challenged our raison d'être in higher education or in in other sectors of education, and we've figured it out. And however dark the current scenario seems, we will figure it out because, the, first of all, people will always need education. And in difficulty, uh, difficult circumstances, you know, in the economic recession, people invest in education to upskill themselves, to try and prepare themselves for what's coming next. Or in risky times, people will send their kids abroad for education because it's safer in country B than in country A. And if they can afford it, they'll find a way to do it. And if, if not, then we we find schemes to help them do it, you know, in terms of uh, scholarships and whatever. So I said, actually, there's nothing different now. And we do know how to do this. And what's more, those of us who work in in the international bits of our education institutions know how to do it more than some of the other colleagues in the institutions because we've always been externally facing. We've always been scanning the external environment. We've always been amending our travel plans because there's bubonic plague here or there's a travel ban there or there's a a volcanic ash cloud, you know. I mean, all of that, we've just done it. And we're we're good at this, and we can help our colleagues in the institution develop these skills as well. So, so actually, and that might sound a bit overly optimistic, and I don't mean to. I just think it's practically true. I agree with you 100%. That's a great positive way to look at it. And for you, Andrew, as a retired international education professional, as per your LinkedIn profile, what next? I, I was noticing that you're actually involved in quite a few things. You said EAIE, of course, um, but there's a number of other things on your profile that uh, you're you're involved in locally as well as, I guess, within international education. So do you see yourself just continuing on with that for the next few years? I, I, I had a great time working with MSM and it was really interesting introducing a company that was unknown in the UK to the UK. And my goodness, I wish I'd known about them a year earlier because I would have bought what they were selling <laughs> and, and had that banner of being first in as the university using them in the UK. But that, that was great. And I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, but I decided to leave because I wanted to step back a little bit because I wanted to spend more time with um, on family matters, aging uh, father and so on. So that's kind of the priority at the moment. But yes, there are a number of things which are, I'm involved with. So committees to do with where we live. And um, another thing I'm, I'm, I'm spending a little bit of time doing, it's not a great deal, deal of time, but it's a very important thing, is I'm um, serving on a panel which scrutinises the way that our local police force handles LGBTQ hate crime investigations. 
I must say the police force really values the input of the lay people who are in the community and able to comment on the way that they handle the case and give an, give an opinion from within the community about uh, things which people who are not in the community may not have sp- spotted in terms of the processing and handling and the language and all that kind of thing. So that it, it isn't a great commitment in terms of um, time, but I really value being involved because, you know, it's not the world I grew up in that the police would ask you <laughs> your opinion and, oh, how can we improve? How can we serve you better? And that wasn't the 1980s. So, you know, that to me is great. And I, I must say that um, in the last two jobs I had in universities, I was able to serve as the LGBTQ senior management champion. And at Leeds Beckett University, we set ourselves the strategic target of becoming a Stonewall top 100 employer. And we managed to achieve it for three years in a row. And so it was it was such wonder. I think it was the best. No, it was one of the best things I did at the university. I really enjoyed my day job, but I really, really enjoyed my gay job. I don't think the senior management team was happier about they were they they liked what I did in my day job, but whenever we had successes in the gay job, I'd never seen a be you know unanimous smiles all around the table, uh, and wanting to come to all the events that we held, and you know it was such a great support uh, from the vice chancellor across the whole of the management team. I think it really did make a difference as well because people used to come up to me in the coffee queue and say you know quietly just say things about their own experience and say how they felt confident to do stuff. That just meant um, meant an enormous amount. And that just kind of triggered something. You mentioned a number of people going to the theme of our podcast, Destiny Menders, and you you mentioned a number of people who have bent your destiny. But we haven't actually really talked about, if you can think of or know of, aside from Dan Liu, who mentioned you in a previous podcast, whose destiny have you bent that you are aware of? And you just talked a bit about your your gay job is that something that you felt like you made a, a real difference in in people's lives or something within international education a student that you worked with or a colleague I've named checked a few people who who are important to me in terms of my own destiny and I would like to name check Susan Price who was the vice chancellor at Leeds Beckett who again took a punt on the fact that she was building a new team to turn around the university and she hired me as one of those new team members mm-hmm. and was the most relentlessly supportive person who just said, Andrew, you know what to do, go off and do it. And for six years, whenever I proposed something, nobody ever said no. Mm-hmm. And that's such a liberating in working environment to know that you, they've got your back and then your team can flourish in that environment. And it was just fantastic. So I have to name check Susan because she was very important um, uh, to my own confidence, actually. Uh, and the gay job and day job as well, because she was at every event waving the flag, you know. <laughs> Talking about how I've influenced colleagues is difficult because I, you know, then I then I feel it's not modest to talk about others' achievements. But there have been a few people who, so, you know, I talked about confidence earlier, the confidence to say you didn't know the answer. I think it also needs a confidence to be working with talent that you know is going to be better than you. When people tell me they're leaving, because they got promoted, I absolutely love it. You know, it's not a, oh my God, it's a tragedy. How am I going to fill that post? It's a, oh my God, that's so fantastic. You got that because you've been able to demonstrate what you could do here. And now you're going to, and and so many people in in my immediate environment have gone on to, to do fantastic things. There is one boast, if I may. So there's a fantastic person at the British Council called Jazreel Go. She's currently director of the British Council in Malaysia. Do you know her? I know of her, I, but I know the name. Yeah. She's wonderful. And she led the education operation in China and East Asia for many years before moving 
to this current directorship. I was the man who hired Jasriel Go, and I'd tell everybody because I fly on her coattails because she's just amazing. Oh, that's great. That's great. Man, we could spend another hour talking about some of your experiences, but I want to be cognizant of time. As we wrap up, like we do every episode, we want to just kind of switch things over a little bit and ask you a quick fire round of questions. Oh, yes. Okay. So you've traveled quite a bit. Is there a specific country that you've wanted to travel to, but you haven't been able to? Yeah, I've got two big holes in my map. I have never been to any country in Africa, and I have never been to any country in South America. Okay. So retirement has to lead me in those directions. Absolutely. I think that's that kind of has your the rest of like the next two or three years <laughs> planned out. I was you. such a great boss. I always sent other people, you know, so. Huh. Quick question then. How about what's your favorite food? You, you spent a lot of time in China. Give us a Chinese dish that is, if you go back to China, that's what you got to eat. Oh, yes. Eat. Fine. I think you're going to ask me about cooking because I love to cook. You don't live in China and marry somebody from China because you like cooking Chinese food. You, you, you do that because you like eating Chinese food. Yes. So uh, the one thing that I really love is, um, oh, oh, dumplings for, for one. So, so, my, so um, oh, I have to show you this quick story. We moved from Beijing to St. Andrews in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Quite the contrast. The year we arrived and got married in St. Andrews, uh, Burns Night and Chinese New Year were the same day. So we hosted a fusion burn supper, which I think must have absolutely disgusted most of our colleagues. And my husband made pot stickers with uh, haggis filling. Wow. And this was in 2007, and they are a firm staple, and everybody who comes to our house gets haggis pot stickers. I can't recommend them more highly enough. <laughs> That's, that sounds like a crazy dish. It, oh, superb. And on my birthday, my, my, my zero birthday this year, because um, we were able to entertain at home with the restrictions lifted, uh, I just sat in the, on the sofa with a glass of champagne all day, and people popped in, and... Yen kept appearing with plates of haggis pot stickers <laughs> for everybody to have. I thought you were going to say people popped in and kept feeding me haggis pot stickers while I'm no, on no. the couch. That, that, was, that was the chef. They all got fed. All right. Final question for you. Um, what's your favorite book? Oh, gosh. One that really influenced me when I was a student. I went to see the film Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which David Bowie and Ryuichi uh, Sakamoto, Ryuichi Sakamoto were in. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And it was based on a book called The Seed and the Sower, which is written by Sir Lawrence van der Post, who was a godfather, I think, to Prince Charles. And it was about his experiences in South Africa. And that was a very, very small book that had a very, very big impact on me. Oh, I'm going to check it out now. I've no idea. Never heard of it. Thank you so much for your time. You, you had us laughing. And this is probably one of the funniest recordings we've had. You've had an incredible career. And I hope you don't hang up your boots yet. There's a lot to be done and we'd love for your leadership to continue in this field. So we wish you the best and thank you so much for your time with us. Well, thank you very much for your time as well. I thoroughly enjoyed it. You've been listening to Destiny Benders. In the next episode, we speak with Stacy Brewer, the co-founder and CEO of Spark Schools, in South Africa. Mm -hmm.